Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The global energy crisis is spreading, enveloping Europe. Blackouts, a home heating crisis, and international tensions between different nations over holding on to natural gas supplies for domestic use are concerns. Dr. Thierry Bro joins us. He's a professor at Sciences Po in Paris, leading expert on markets, geopolitics of oil and gas, and energy security. He's an oil and gas expert at the French Energy Ministry, where he was in charge of security supplies, and he was voted the best European gas analyst four years in a row. He advised on emergency issues at the International Energy Agency and the European Commission. His books include The European Gas Markets, Challenges and Opportunities, and the Oxford Handbook of International Security. Uh, Dr. Bro is also a contributor, regular contributor, to naturalgasworld.com. Professor Bro, thank you very much for taking the time. How are you? I'm fine. Good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to talk to you. You're, is your, so is Europe facing an energy crisis this winter and one which may result in an energy shortfall which could make just staying warm at home a challenge? The short answer is yes, unfortunately, perhaps not staying warm at, at home because we have a system in Europe where residential customers have priority. So uh, we will still be warm at home, but we, will, may, we may have industries that will be forced to shut in, which is uh, what you call a blackout or demand destruction. And would this be Europe-wide or would it be contained to one or two countries? That's a, a very interesting question because we have a solidarity mechanism inside the EU. So it is something that is for the 27 member states, which states that priority customers, as, as I stated, the residential one. And so therefore, we should be in a position to switch off some industries somewhere to make sure that those, industri- that those residential are still warm in their home. The problem here is, well, uh, are we going to switch off some French industry to warm Germans or are we going to switch some German industry to warm the French? And, and this is why, in theory, everything works very well. But in practice, we may see some very difficult implementation of this solidarity mechanism. And I think this is perhaps also where the Kremlin is pushing this energy crisis a bit more to see if the theory of the solidarity mechanism is going to work smoothly in Europe. Uh, my bet, it, it's not going to work very smoothly. Yeah, this is uh, President Putin with his natural gas supplies and his, uh, his uh, pipeline under the Baltic, which the German government has now said that according to its rules and regulations must be owned by a German subsidiary. But ultimately, it's President Putin who has his hand on the valve, isn't it? Yes, on, on this one. But again, as you stated, now the, the ball is in the, in the German court. I mean, it's going to be the German that will have to decide. The, uh, I think, personally, that here we, we have uh, an, uh, an opportunity here because, I mean, this pipe is uh, stranded for now. And so we can decide and we can go on and go on with this kind of saga and every, 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 every morning, every, every afternoon we have some news flow. Or we should, I think, 
uh, put this back to the political level, to the highest political level. And I think, as you stated, I mean, it's President Putin, but it should be President Ursula von der Leyen that with him discuss a broad system. I mean, there is this pipe. And as I stated, we are receiving less gas from Russia than uh, we could expect. And I think this could be an opportunity for leaders to re-engage in, in the system because we need to go back to reality. We need to go back to real politics. Yeah. Let me just expand on that a bit. And from and just run this past year, as I understand it, Norway, which is another major exporter, energy exporter, natural gas, has seen natural gas prices increase rather sevenfold in the last year, and it's exploring whether the country may in fact stop natural gas exports to its EU partners if that's deemed necessary by the Norwegian government. Serbia as well is investigating halting electricity exports in order to keep its own citizens supplied, and France has threatened to reduce power exports to Britain's Channel Islands over fishing rights. Meanwhile, Ireland has already interrupted wind power supplies to the UK, saying the country is in dire straits and facing blackouts. So this sounds to me like a critical mass situation is developing and that Europe is facing a natural gas shortage, which may see European nations increasingly refusing to export energy to their partners, the cutting edge of a political crisis. Do you believe, and let's come back to what you just said, do you believe, given all of these factors, that the political will will exist to operate as a union, as a cooperative entity, or will they just pull back and say, we'll take care of ours first? I, I think, unfortunately, it may be the, the second option. It may be the second option for, for two reasons. First of all, uh, uh, again, the country that has a lot of energy uh, is France, and France is going to run for presidential election. So it may be very difficult for an outgoing president to uh, switch off some uh, plants in France to uh, provide electricity or gas to others. So that's the first element. And second element, perhaps, uh, what you didn't mention is the fact that in France we are pro-nuke, and you've seen some European countries at COP26 making a lot of noise against nuke. So again, it may be also a question of responsibility. If you're uh, in Austria, if you're in Germany, and you don't want nuke, uh, well, maybe uh, going to be saved by your uh, fellow European is going to be uh, more uh, difficult or less likely. Did you ever, Professor Bro, think that we would be arriving at the situation that we're at now, the world facing this this energy crunch? Was this predictable? I think it, it could have been predicted because I think what we made a mistake in the energy transition is what I call the uh, demand reduction dogma. We've always believed in Europe, but I'm sure in other places as well, that we were going to consume less uh, and this was going to be cheaper for our people and we were going to pollute less. Uh, with this, uh, the fact that we are receiving less Russian gas, we end up in the situation where we are consuming the same amount, we are polluting more, and uh, we are paying much, much more. So I think this could have been uh, expected. I, I believe, you know, that the commodity is a boom and bust cycle, but we've exacerbated this cycle by wanting to push uh, fossil gas as we call it in Europe now, we don't call it natural gas, we call it fossil gas. We wanted to push fossil gas out of our energy mix, and gas is 25% of our energy mix. So you cannot do something without it. Yeah, you call what's happening now, you've described it anyway, as the revenge of the fossil fuels. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. It's a revenge because, I mean, you cannot get your energy transition without it uh, unless you invest massively, massively, massively in uh, the ability of people to consume less, what I call demand reduction, in the fact that we are also uh, have to educate people uh, that the renewable is not exactly the same electricity as the one that we get from a gas fire power plant or from a nuclear plant. One is intermittency it's intermittent renewable electricity and the other one is when you want and people want energy when they wish not when the sun is uh, shining or the wind is blowing so i think all those are very nice on the paper but in reality it's much more difficult and this is where we are stuck in our energy transition uh, we, we it's going to be difficult to say to people you are going to have to live with less comfort uh, you are going to heat your home less People are not going to re-elect people saying this. So this is where, uh, if we want to solve the uh, crisis, uh, the climate crisis, we have to consume gas and to push coal out of the mix and to do what the UK has done pretty well, by the way, which is what I call a coal to gas to renewable switch. But you cannot do a coal to renewable or renew or a nuke to renewable overnight. Mm-hmm. Canada is facing our usual very cold winter Energy costs are climbing rapidly, contributing to inflation, and we can't even supply ourselves domestically because we don't have a national pipeline infrastructure, and the political will is directed elsewhere. What what do you think we should be expecting in this country? I mean, you're facing, as I the same kind of policymakers as we have. I mean, again, the the question, and and you had this uh, poll, which is very important. I mean, people are in favor of climate as long as it doesn't cost them more. But the energy transition is going to cost us a fortune and it's going to impact our lives. So we need, policymakers need to be realistic, need to be pragmatic and need to share the truth with the people. We cannot say energy transition is going to happen overnight and this will be solved. I mean, COP26 was not a success. And again, if we need uh, to, uh, to pollute less and we all need to pollute less, we need to do it on a step-by-step, on a process way. And what I've been saying is we have to reduce our CO2 days in, days out, not to say we are going to reduce it in 2050 by uh, zero to be net zero, and we have no idea the kind of path we are going to follow. So yes, uh, we, uh, by the way, we need more gas, and we've seen more uh, gas being uh, produced in the U.S., uh, more gas being produced uh, in Qatar soon, more gas perhaps going to be produced in, in Russia. And, and your question about Canada is an interesting one, because Canada may be able to uh, produce more gas, natural gas, and to export it under, natural, um, under liquefied format, and this will help other countries that need more energy to move away from coal. Well, that's the interesting question, because just a few years ago, we were expecting Canada would become a net exporter of energy as uh, we headed toward a more renewables reality in the world. But we haven't really done much to create the reality of being able to export our energy. As I said, we, we're, we have enough troubles, I suspect, taking care of ourselves domestically looking forward. And people, as this poll points out, 65% of Canadians don't want to pay more to tackle climate change, and they'll turn on politicians. We've had pollsters tell us that. And only 25% of Canadians expect COP26 to produce real results. So we have, at the very least, we have a confused uh, population and one that is not prepared to put up with very much. And that would, I, I imagine, be the same situation in Europe. 
Absolutely. And remember, we are betting the energy transition on this, what I call this uh, dogma of the demand reduction and the fact that we have no way to store energy. I mean, everybody is talking about putting more renewable, but we have no storage of electricity. We don't know how to do it. And maybe at the end of the process, if we are able to do it, we will need rare earths from China or from uh, Congo, which is going to create another security of supply issue. So, yes, we need to be pragmatic, and I think we need to take it step by step. And if we are able to produce oil and gas in North America in a way that is uh, the best possible following all uh, new technology, having less methane leakage, etc., etc., this is better for the climate than burning coal in Poland, as we are seeing right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you represented France on uh, the oil markets and advised on emergency issues at the International Energy Agency and the European Commission. And the International Energy a- Agency has said that even if all of the initiatives uh, to uh, to transfer to renewables and get to net zero are met, that by 2060 we're still going to be using 100 million barrels a day of oil globally. So it's not going away. As you said, it's the revenge of the fossil fuels. Uh, absolutely. This is where I think we made this mistake. And remember, the IEA was saying uh, earlier this summer, uh, the net zero needs uh, to us not to invest in oil and gas. This This is a huge mistake, because if we do not invest in oil and gas, we will see what we are seeing right now in Europe and what you're seeing in, in the U.S. also is uh, coal coming back. Uh, And uh, if you burn coal to produce electricity, you produce two times more CO2 emission than if you use gas. So those are really the pragmatic element we should we should do and we should explain to our people. And and again, as as you said, I'm I'm professor. I'm teaching to young uh, students and they are uh, not aware of all those issues. There's a very interesting uh, development, very interesting. And it comes from Austria. And we talked about it, but we're going to speak about it in more detail now. And that is that Austria has locked down more than 2 million of its unvaccinated citizens. And that was as of this past Monday. Now, starting tomorrow, the rest of Austria, the rest of Austria's citizens and residents, will go into lockdown, COVID lockdown, until probably around the middle of December. But the Chancellor of Austria has also said, the government in Vienna, has said that within three months, so by February, there will be national legislation which will require all Austrians to be vaccinated against COVID. Now, there have already been protests in the streets of Vienna about the the, uh, lockdown of the unvaccinated. And yesterday, as you've probably seen in Rotterdam, there were riots. There's a lot of rioting going on as people uh, took to the streets in um, the violent objection to the COVID restrictions. But the situation, the story that I find particularly interesting is the one in Austria. Now, remember that 70% of Canadians have said that unvaccinated Canadians should lose their jobs, or they wouldn't feel too bad if the unvaccinated lost their jobs. That was Angus Reid polling. So let's talk about this, this whole situation uh, in Austria. And Germany, by the way, as well, they had some 48,000 infections, I think, on Friday, new infections, COVID infections. So they're talking about lockdowns. They're talking about restrictions as far as getting out to uh, public places is concerned, particularly for the unvaccinated. Dr. Rebecca Wiesmeg-Kammerlander joins us. She's a lecturer in German and European studies at King's College in London. She's also Austrian. Dr. Wiesmeg-Kammerlander, thank you very much for the time. How are you? 
Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm perfectly fine. Thank you. I find it's just it, a really interesting topic. Yeah, it is. And I find, you know, for some reason, I find it, I find it almost compulsory these days to ask people how they are. I never did that before, but I do now. Yeah, it is important. I think it is. I mean, I live in the UK, so uh, things are a little bit easier for me here than they are would have been back home, I guess. Yeah. So, so as you look at the, the situation in in your homeland of Austria, why the decision to lock down more than two million? Austrians who are vaccinated, unvaccinated rather, at this particular time. What do, what do you think caused it? And what do you make of the response, the reaction by the national population? I think it's, you know, numbers are soaring and we have um, the by far worst vaccination rate of Western Europe. So um, we are obviously the the people who are in the most need of actually changing things around. And I think there are a number of factors that play into that. For one thing, um, we are, of course, trying to hike up the vaccination rates and all kinds of different measures like um, incentivizing people to do so, trying to get information out and um, yeah, convincing people with facts and figures to get vaccinated has obviously not worked as well as we would have liked. And I think um, not locking down that particular part of the population is driving them, of course, to get vaccinated and numbers have picked up a bit after that. So I think that's one point. And I also think Austria, of course, and this is something that I do in my research as well, is very um, aware of its branding. And we've had a huge like, damage to our to our national image being the um, starting point, really, of, of the pandemic in Europe with Ishko, the ski resorts there. So I think it's really important as well to be reactive here real quick and to be, the, be at the forefront of new measures and get some positive feedback from the European community for that, I reckon. I wasn't aware that Austria was the starting point for uh, for COVID in Europe. I, I think a lot of us thought it was in uh, Italy, but Austria. Well, there was um, there was a, a, re- a really big cluster that happened in Ischgl, so Tyrol- in, in Tyrolean ski resort, right. where people had been infected and the, the infection had apparently been known and they weren't like properly reported. So people who were there on holidays then took the virus back to um, to the Netherlands, to Germany, and spread it from there. And because the cluster wasn't reported in time, that kind of had a huge a huge aftermath, really, and was also picked up by The Guardian and other international press for a while back then. So it was a huge blow to the, the national image, really. There's so much has gone on with, uh, with COVID over the last 19 months, 20 months. And to try to remember how it all developed, how it all started is sometimes a little challenging. I remember reading a very small article in, a, in an online newspaper in December of ni- 2019, and it talked about an unknown virus that had appeared in China and that it was causing some level of a concern. And I remember reading that and thinking, oh, I should pay attention to that. And of course, very quickly, the entire world was paying attention to it. Let me ask you this. Uh, so we have a national lockdown beginning tomorrow in Austria, the 2 million plus unvaccinated Austrians lockdown as of this past Monday. So tomorrow, the whole country, within three months, all Austrians must be vaccinated by federal law. How is that going to fly with the Austrian population? And why are Austrians, by and large, when compared to the rest of the European population, so resistant to the vaccine? I'm not quite sure how well it's going down. I mean, if you if you listen to interviews that have been carried out on the streets as well, like asking people, I think the, the resistance is kind of waning down a little bit because obviously we have um, 60 plus percent of the population vaccine. That's not enough, of course, but it is a substantial part of the um, of the citizenship, right? So people are kind of um, pro-vaccine um, by and large. But still, I reckon um, there's a huge prevalence of conspiracy theories that's going that's going around in the German-speaking lens and in Europe more general, I think. 
which is um, for some reason more prevalent in the German-speaking countries. But there are also very specific uh, structural issues in Austria that I think kind of also um, contribute quite significantly to skepticism to the vaccine, which is for one thing that um, while there have obviously been um, huge attempts made by a public broadcasting service like the ORF, so our national broadcasting um, channel, and um, good newspapers as well to put proper information and figures out, there's the issue of false, of false balance reporting with people that are skeptic and vaccine deniers being on air and being able to have their voices heard, like Sujari Bhakti, for example, a very infamous figure in the German-speaking context who has been on um, a private news channel called Servus TV that's um, run by Mataschitz, the guy who owns Red Bull, has, has, been there on, has been on there quite a while and had chances to spread this misinformation. Then there's also um, our right-wing party, the FPÖ, so the Freedom Party, with a party leader, Kickel, spewing misinformation all the time. So he's been also advertising um, the dewormer Eva McTeen as a COVID cure, and people have been taking that and have been going to hospital over overdosing on this. He's also um, called for resistance against the safety measures and asked people to protest, but he himself has actually been tested positive for the virus last week and is in quarantine now. So these are things, and then there's also the self-stylization of the conservative Kurz ÖVP, so the former chancellor, who actually in June went out and said, well, the pandemic is over, it's done, and it's, it's been particularly done for the vaccinated people, there will be no consequences anymore, yeah. which I kind of think has also been underpinning people who thought, well, it's not that tragic anyway, so we can be careless now. Yeah, so if you, have, on, so you have a national population of just under, I think it's just under 10 million people, yeah, exactly. In, in it's not Austria, huge. Right. So it's so it's just under ten million, but you've had over two million who've been locked down as of this past Monday. The rest are going to be locked yeah. down as of tomorrow. And you're not expecting this to go over very well. Are you expecting it to be reasonably peaceful or something uh, a little less than peaceful? I'm actually expecting it to be still um, kind of peaceful because the past had shown we have had people um, pushing back against the lockdowns that we've had before. And it has been fairly peaceful so far, which I hope will, will carry on being the case. I don't see that there would be huge uprisings as we've seen in the Netherlands, mm -hmm. simply because there is no precedent for that in Austria. But um, yeah, of course, you cannot, you can either be, be really sure about that. So it's yeah. hard to predict the future, really. Bank of Nova Scotia economist writing in a letter to clients warning that any new big spending programs initiated by the Trudeau government will only drive inflation further upward. And again, it just registered 4.7% increase over the last, well, since it was, what it, over what it was 18 years ago. Uh, and we're expecting that Finance Minister Freeland is going to be announcing billions and billions and billions of additional spending when they have their first um, statement on spending, whatever they're going to call it, in, uh, in a short while since the election. So let's get at this with somebody who really knows what they're talking about. Professor Eric Kam, Professor of Macroeconomics at Ryerson University in Toronto. Professor Kam, a great favorite of this program. Professor Kam, thank you very much for the time. First of all, what do you make of the inflationary trend? And what are your concerns? Do you have similar concerns to the economist from the Bank of Nova Scotia who said, hey, Massive spending by the federal government will just drive it further. Well, that person is 100 percent right. Um, and you know what? Today, that isn't making um, them special. I mean, it, it is true that, you know, inflation, the problem with inflation uh, in a historical sense is that, Roy, we haven't had any 
in a very long time. And we've, we've dealt with some unemployment spills here and some unemployment spills there and some international trade issues here and there. But really, unless you are over the age of 40, you probably don't remember inflation being a crisis in this country. But as you have pointed out correctly, and I remember from being uh, 11, 12 years old, uh, I remember people walking away from their homes when their debt levels became more than the house was worth. So I think one of the problems here is that it's just it's brand new. It's brand new to a generation of people to have prices rising. It, it's very, very in to complain about real wages not going up fast enough. But that's the as we say, that's the numerator of the fraction. For the first time in a long time, we have to worry about the denominator. The denominator, which is prices, is going up much faster than anything in the numerator. So I have to ask the good listenership that we really have to start thinking in real terms. Don't worry for the first time so much about wage gains that you may get in a contract, because trust me, right now, any wage gains that you're getting are being way outpaced by increases in the price. And as we use the term real wages, they are falling, Roy. And anytime real wages fall in an economy, that is that that's just not a good foreshadow of what's coming next. Yeah. So what's happening where we are now? And then I'll ask you to project where we may be in a year or two. I know that's hard to do. But uh, what's happening to people's investments, to their retirement, to their savings? What is inflation doing as far as eroding that nest egg is concerned? Well, uh, I hate to be repetitive, but uh, it is eroding that that nest egg. I mean, it's exactly what happens anytime you have a prolonged sense of inflation and the general price level going up. There are just some tried and true issues that follow it. One is uncertainty. People don't know where to invest, so they tend to soak their cash away. Well, that's fine. Um, if you're risk averse, but it doesn't help and getting close to retirement if your money isn't earning you money. It tends to redistribute income, not in the ways we want it to. It doesn't seem to redistribute it in any way to help people that are impoverished. The costs of fighting inflation are terribly high. And if you're not fighting inflation, Roy, you know that you can use those economic efforts towards doing all th other things in the economy. But to long-windedly answer your question, what is the biggest problem in an inflationary phase? Number one, real incomes are falling. For the very first time in a long time, with inflation hovering around 4%, which we know is outside of what the Bank of Canada considers healthy, real incomes, real wages, purchasing power are falling. And then as 1B, bondholders are losing out because they bought their government bonds with some interest rates that are around 6%, 5%, 4%. And now you start to have inflation and the value of those bonds starts to fall. So it does, as you predicted, nothing good in terms of retirement, nothing good in terms of purchasing power. In fact, inflation tends to do not much good for the economy and the government has to fight it at some point. Yeah. So what is the antidote? It's hard to say. It's hard to say right now because we're a little bit stuck. You know, we have a puzzle going on and macroeconomists, me included, are always concerned when there's puzzles because theory says that if one thing happens, well, another thing should happen. And one of them is if the unemployment rate is high, job vacancies should be low. 
And right now we have this very strange macroeconomic puzzle because we have a high unemployment rate and a high job vacancy rate. So we've got some very, very odd things going on in the labor market. The frictions that are caused by the, su the supply disruptions are really playing games. They're really throwing wedges into the labor market. And so the recovery of wages is very slow, especially in lower wage jobs. And the, sh and the shortages, as we pointed out, number one is are in skilled trades. Number one are in skilled trades that are seeing their wages getting eroded in real terms. So what can the government do? Well, it has to go back to when it used to have the 2% solution. Uh, it was one of the things that they brought in in the 1980s to say we have got to target the inflation rate because if prices go up too fast, then really wages mean nothing. I always joke with students, what do you think the money in your wallet is worth? Because it's not worth what it was 10 minutes ago. So my prescription for the Bank of Canada, and, and the Bank of Canada knows this because Tiff Macklem is at least as smart, if not smarter than me, is they have to get back to getting that 2%, plus or minus 2% as an inflation target. And as much as people aren't going to like to hear it, they're going to have to start creeping up with the rate of interest. They're going to have to take the prime and raise it a bit. There's just too much money out in the economy. There was too much money given out by the Trudeau government. And, and I'm getting too many tweets saying, please stop bashing the government. So I'll stop bashing the government for a bit. But there's too many people chasing too much money. And they've got to get back to inflation targeting. They've got to get back to raising the prime rate. Not a lot, not one, two, five percent that's going to put the economy into a huge tailspin. But they've got to start controlling the amount of money in the economy, Roy. So I'm not telling you anything that you can't get out of a macroeconomics textbook, but the Bank of Canada has to go back to doing what it does best. Yeah, and there have been times in relatively recent times, in fact, in some parts of the world, it's still going on, where you literally fill a wheelbarrow full of money printed by the government money presses to get a loaf of bread. Well, that's right. And, you know, you can go to places historically like Brazil and Argentina and Israel, and you can just watch the value of your money erode minute by minute, hour by hour. Now, we're not there. Let's not let's look out the window. We don't see chaos. But you know what? We don't want to see chaos. So we really no. need a combination of the government and the Bank of Canada to go back to doing what they know how to do because they did it for about 25 years and they did it successfully. There is a roadmap. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. But, you know, it was like CERB when you and I said a year ago, uh, Mr. Trudeau, you've got to start slowing down the amount of money you give out. Well, Dr. Macklem, it's time to start doing what the central bank we know can do successfully. And if Minister Freeland decides to spend many billions of dollars, additional dollars, on government programs, that light in the end of the tunnel will prove to be the proverbial oncoming train. It'll prove to be the oncoming train of so many things. It will fuel inflation. It will fuel debt. It will fuel deficit. That's not that's not the answer. And, I, you know, again, I won't bash the government for the next you know 20 minutes until I'm on your show again. But, you know, the government's got to start thinking, with all due respect, like macroeconomists are trained to think that it is not an endless well. And I know that there's this theory of, well, it's not going to happen in my term of office. But you know what? We both know, Roy, that's very, very poor governmenting. You have to be of the people, by the people, for the people. And right now they are not operating in the interest 
of the people. And I'm just left to shake my head sometimes and say, okay, then if you're not going to do it, the Bank of Canada has to do it. And I actually think that they know that. So, Professor Cam, we look at the crisis in Europe. We see countries starting to say, hey, we may not export because we have to take care of our domestic markets first. Yeah, we know we have EU obligations, but we have to take care of our own folks, which could turn country against country, certainly exacerbate the uh, existing energy crisis. How do you evaluate that? And what's your sense about what may, in fact, happen in Canada as far as energy is concerned? You know, Roy, it's funny. This is a really depressing topic uh, in a lot of ways, because one thing that economists don't like to do is see where there could have been gains that were just um, fumbled, to use a football analogy. Um, and, And that's where we are. I mean, you know, Europe is having a climate obsession and they're having a war and it's sending fuel prices going like crazy. And that global energy crisis could have been a bit of a bonanza for oil and gas rich countries like Canada. But when you think about the pressure that you get from the environmental activists and from um, government inefficiencies that block things like pipelines and infrastructure, then you really dampen the enthusiasm of investors to to, uh, expand their production. So what do I think? I mean, I think that we have to really look at ourselves, look in the mirror and see what we see. I mean, we stand alone right now alone in oil and gas production of, of, of carbon taxes and how high they are. And they're going to rise to $170, they're guessing, per ton by 2030. But here's the problem. Gasoline prices are already 30 to 35% higher in the last year. So the assumption is that taxes diminish consumption. But you know what? They don't. Canada's high carbon tax becomes counterproductive to me when it causes more damage, like higher energy prices and reduced economic growth, than it does climate change. And the, and the sad part, to sum that all up in two words, is comparative advantage. Canada had a comparative advantage in producing oil and gas, and we effectively gave it up for something like a carbon tax, which is never going to meet the goals that it was intended. And so for me, Roy, it's just sad because it's like saying you know the game plan, you know what's going what's gonna to win your team the game, But let's follow another model just to see what happens if we go down that road. And I think it's a shame. Yeah, it's like being the quarterback and saying, let me see if I, what would happen if I just threw this ball to that guy over there who's wearing a different color sweater to mine? Well, that's right. You know, emissions as they are, are being reduced primarily by innovative technologies and not taxes. And Canada says we don't care. We're going to throw taxes at it. We're not going to be innovative. We're not going to be new. We're not going to be different. And we're not going to follow models around the world that have worked. We're going to tax it. And we are going to learn the hard way, sadly, that t- sometimes taxes don't solve problems. But liberal governments, God bless them, have a hard time wrapping their heads around that sometimes. Do you know, when we talk about in Europe, for example, where the countries are saying, we'll take care of our domestic markets first. Then we'll start to think about you. I know we have contractual agreements, we have treaties and obligations, but nevertheless, our responsibility as a national government is to look after our people, so you guys will come next, if you come at all. We can't even do that in this country. We can't even look after ourselves because we don't have the kind of pipeline infrastructure and infrastructure to get our energy to our own consumers. We are now dependent on other countries to bring energy to us, which, and just a few years ago, Professor Camus, you well know better than I, this country was seen as a source of international energy export. 
This is what I'm saying, Roy. We had a comparative advantage. We were on the precipice of not needing other countries to the point of telling them where to take their high prices and put them comfortably. And we gave it away. We gave it away because we tried to do something that I think a lot of people knew was foolhardy and was never, ever going to reach intended targets. And so we just took the ball once again and we handed it to the other team and said, here, you can run with this. We don't need it. And it, it honestly honestly, as an economist, could make you cry. Yeah, and we didn't even do anything to block them after we gave them the ball. We just cleared the path for them, which is absolutely ridiculous and dangerous. So you and I are probably both getting get into trouble if we keep going now. Well, you're, well, ten, you're tenured. I'm not, so. Very well, nice. allow me to say this. Uh, my Miami Dolphins won today, and I wish your Dallas Cowboys the best of luck against the Kansas City Chiefs. How about we <laughs> leave it there? How about that? Let's talk about what's going on here at home, because there are developments, including the Public Health Agency of Canada endorsing the Pfizer vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds. That's got a lot of people talking. Joining us on the program, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases specialist at Toronto General Hospital, associate professor of medicine at the University of Toronto, and of course was a member of the Ontario Task Force on Vaccination. Dr. Bogosh, thank you very much for taking the time. The developments in Europe are very interesting. I wonder if they're going to spread to this country and uh, and to us. But let me start with this question, and please fit that in anywhere you wish. What about the idea of vaccinating 5 to 11-year-olds? I'm receiving many emails from parents saying, I don't think so. Yeah, totally fair. Everyone's allowed to have, uh, you know, fear, anxiety, concern about this. These are natural. Everyone just wants what's best for their kids. I mean, these are completely normal responses. And on the flip side of the coin, you have other parents who are jumping in with two feet and they can't wait to get their, their kids vaccinated. I mean, listen, I think it's fair to communicate that kids, of course, can get this infection. Kids can transmit this infection. Kids can amplify this infection. Kids can get sick from this infection. It's not as common as adults, but they sure can. They sure can. The vaccine appears to be able to significantly reduce the risk of infection in kids, and that would also mean reducing the risk of severe infection in kids. It would reduce the risk that they get it at a school environment or an extracurricular activity. It reduces the risk that they bring it home to a family member, including a vulnerable family member. There's a lot of good reasons to vaccinate. But yeah, yeah some, some families have concerns and questions, and that's okay. There's no reason to shame and blame or have stigma. If you have questions or concerns, sit down with your health care provider. Get those taken seriously, address them with empathy, and get your, your concerns answered. I think if we do that, we'll see a lot more people vaccinate their children. Yeah, you'd be comfortable vaccinating your own kids, right? Yeah, yeah, I would. I absolutely would. Um, but, uh, but you know, like everything else in this pandemic, what's, what's good for me might not be the same for mm-hmm. everybody else. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, that's okay. I think we'll watch probably 50 to 60% of parents vaccinate their children, and maybe we'll watch the other 50 40, 50 percent, maybe slowly come around to this with time. How concerned should people be about side effects, potential side effects of a vaccine uh, for children? You obviously cannot ignore it. We have to acknowledge that the clinical trial in children was small, so you're not going to detect the rare side effects that can occur. Those will be detected in what's called post-marketing surveillance, which is when the vaccine rolls out in a massive community will be able to detect the very, very rare side effects with that. Uh, and that's, that's real. I mean, that's, that's 
We saw that happen, for example, with AstraZeneca and the blood clotting, right? The clinical trials were about 25, 30,000 people, but the risk of this blood clotting event was about, probably ends up being around 1 in 61 in 70,000. You're not going to detect that even in a massive clinical trial. So, you know, there might be some rare side effects that are seen, and we just have to acknowledge uncertainty. If you read the NACI document, they outline this beautifully. They communicate the risk, the benefit, the uncertainty. They still say people should really go and get this, but... Uh, but they also acknowledge that some people might want to wait, and that's okay. We should not be shaming and blaming for those that decide to wait a little bit longer. What are your thoughts on the antivirals developed by Merck and Pfizer? And, and I've read the reports. I'm sure that you're, you're very familiar with this, so I'll ask you for, for some detail, that if you take these antiviral pills, that you're reducing the likelihood of being infected uh, by, by a virus, including a coronavirus, by some 19 to 95%. Do I have those, those numbers right? Yeah, so these pills look fantastic. Again, we have to see the data. I'm very skeptical of press releases from big corporations. If they're as good as the companies say they are, then we're, they'll be put to good use. The Merck can reduce the risk if someone's infected, reduces the risk of severe infection like hospitalization and death by 50%. Pfizer's by about close to 90%. Here's the trick. you got to get diagnosed quickly. you got to start those pills quickly, very soon after the infection for them to have their maximum benefit. That's based on everything we know about them. We'll probably have access to them. Here's the other point. This is helpful. This is very helpful. COVID's not going anywhere. This is very helpful. But obviously, if you can prevent that from happening in the first place, like with vaccination, you're, you're far better off in any infectious disease. The goal is prevention rather than treatment, but it's great to have treatment in our back pocket if we get access to them. I don't know when they'll be rolling these out in Canada. I mean, we're probably months and months away from having these Mm. available to us in Canada. Okay. This may be an overly simplistic way of asking the question, but our anticipation was in the summertime that when we were vaccinated, Canadians, I say collectively, after we received our two vaccinations, we'd be fine. We'd be safe from, from COVID, relatively, largely safe from COVID. Here we are, we're heading into winter, we're seeing what's happening in Europe, and, and, it's, and it's disturbing, it's concerning. And I know a lot of the numbers have to do with unvaccinated, but still it's concerning. And now we have a booster shot, and uh, we're have to, we have to decide whether we're going to agree to be booster vaccinated. I will, but many won't. Um, who's winning this, this battle? Is COVID winning or are we winning? How, how's, how's this developing? Yeah, so I'd like to break this up into individual health and population health from an individual health standpoint. If you've received two doses of the vaccine, first of all, congratulations. The effectiveness of that persists over time. Yes, of course, there's breakthrough infections. Uh, it's less likely if, to get infected if you're vaccinated, but of course, it's not impossible. But you, the risk of having a severe infection requiring hospitalization and death is extraordinarily, it's so much less common in the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. It's so much less common. But like anything else, you know, the uh, the booster vaccine probably does add a significant layer of protection. I think it's fair to say that for adults, this is probably a three-dose vaccine series. And guess what? There's lots of three-dose vaccines. <laughs> Many people have had them. Hepatitis B, HPV, pertussis. Like, there's lots of three-dose vaccines. This is probably just another one. No big deal population health levels. So that's at the individual level. If you're vaccinated, you're not going to get, it's so unlikely you're going to land in hospital and die with this. You might get the infection, but you're not going to get sick and die. Um, From a population health standpoint, yeah, you're watching. Listen, it's winter. People are inside. 
we do see breakthrough infections, but we also see a disproportionate number of infections in the unvaccinated. And you hear, oh, but Roy, 90% of eligible people in Canada have had at least the first dose. Yes, but that's a percentage. We still have to think about the absolute number of people who remain unvaccinated. That's in the millions. So you can't get surprised when you have a variant like Delta that is exquisitely contagious from finding people who are unvaccinated. It will find you. It will find you. It just needs time. It's not going anywhere, and it will find the unvaccinated. And sadly, it, it can do some damage. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.